The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. This morning's scripture reading is from 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 8, and verse 14. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to Christ. Well, good morning, everybody. Thanks, Johanna, for reading uh, twice today. Uh, And uh, there are three things. I'll just start out by saying there are three things that are unique about Easter at Christ Pres. And that is, uh, you'll notice, uh, if you've been around for a while, there's usually tables up here with communion, bread, and wine and juice and everything. And we do that on Good Friday, uh, Easter week. So there's no communion today. We'll go straight into the last song after the the sermon. Uh, The second thing that's unique about Easter is that we get to have the kids with us during the service. We actually have kids programming during especially the sermon part of the service, uh, and for the younger kids, the whole service uh, every week uh, other than Easter, uh, if, uh, if uh, you need to know that kind of information moving forward. And then finally, this is also uh, the Sunday where the preacher always wears a tie, um, which is unique around here. I actually had to rent this. It was the last one at the rental store. Um, People who know me uh, know that uh, there, there are essentially four occasions when I wear a tie, weddings, funerals, Easter Sunday, and my friend Pam Benton's birthday. So those are the times when I wear a tie. Um, and, uh, and so, all kidding aside, uh, it, it's important, uh, as usual, to start an Easter sermon with a quote from Bono. He has the greatest quotes uh, and the greatest insights uh, around Easter. I'm serious about that. Uh, I love artists because our artists just give the unvarnished truth in such a beautiful, poetic way for everybody else's consideration. And Bono happens to believe the stuff that we're talking about today. And recently, you may have seen a video of him doing an interview with theologian, Anglican theologian David Taylor, about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Uh, In that video, he says these words. He says, I became an artist through the portal of grief. I became an artist through the portal of grief. And then he talks about how his mother died when he was 14 years old from an aneurysm at his father's gravesite. And so that experience from age 14 on had an indelible mark on Bono. And he said this about his mother's sudden death. She left me, but she left me an artist, trying to fill the hole in my heart. Finally, the only thing that could fill it was God's love. It's a big hole, but it's also a big love. And then he goes on in this video, if you've seen it, uh, to say that the thing that sealed it for him 
was a pilgrimage he took to Jerusalem, and then he visited a place near Jerusalem called Golgotha, which also happens to be a place that Jesus was crucified. And he said, it dawned on me as I stood there at Golgotha that this is the place where death died. And he goes on and he says, a lot of our psychology is based on the fear of death. I don't believe in death anymore. It has no power over me as it did at age 14. So I'm, I'm actually standing in front of you this morning with an assumption. Uh, and I know on Easter Sunday especially, there, there, there are a lot more people than usual in the room. We assume this every Sunday, but especially on Easter, there, there are a lot more people in the room uh, who um, are either people who have been away from their faith for a long time uh, or uh, would not identify themselves as Christians uh, and or who are actually upset with Christians and with what they understand Christianity to be. And I also assume that no matter where you come from, whether you're a buoyant, exuberant follower of Jesus Christ or the furthest thing from that, I'm coming to you this morning with the assumption that you also have a hole or two in your heart, and you also have some pain points that you maybe are hoping against hope that there might be some resolution for those pain points. And so, I, 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 just, I just want to tell you up front, I don't apologize for it, but I want to be honest. I want to be transparent. I have an agenda this morning. If you are a Christian who's been away from your faith for a while, or if you are somebody who doesn't identify as a Christian, or, or you are somebody who is mad at Christians or at Christianity or at God Himself, I want to convince you of the very same things that the Apostle Paul is trying to convince all of us of. And I want to do that by trying to answer three questions. Is it true? It's the most important question that could be asked on Easter. Is it true? Did it really happen? Second, who is, it, who is it for? And then finally, will it let you down? So, let's start with the first question. Is it true? So, I was around 20 years old when I came to my own belief that this is true. Uh, I was on my own pilgrimage. I didn't go to the other side of the world like Bono did, but I was reading all kinds of religion and philosophy and and people who thought they had the answer to the meaning of life because I was this kid who had a lot of really great things from an optics perspective going for him in his life. Academics, athletics, success, job opportunities, everything else. And, and there were certain points where I, I realized I, I actually don't want to live because this all seems so empty and meaningless. And, and at, at the age of 20, I had this keen awareness that the mortality rate is one person for every one person. And so I was searching for meaning. I knew I couldn't beat death, but I, but I was searching for meaning. And, and, and then I started reading the Gospels, which are the, fourth, the first four books in what, 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 what Christians call the New Testament. And in the Gospel, I encountered directly for the first time this person named Jesus. And he struck me as, as, as uniquely one who had answers and cures 
for every kind of regret, every kind of hurt, every kind of fear. I was really drawn in by Jesus, but I was hesitant to dive all in with him because of doubt. I was a 20-year-old young adult who wanted so much for this to be true, but I couldn't give myself to it any more than I could give myself to Captain America. I needed to know it was true, that it wasn't fiction. And I stand in front of you now as one who is more convinced than he's ever been before. And I, I want to give you two reasons. And it's, it's not just because I'm wearing a pink tie. There's two other reasons that make Easter, the Easter, the event, Jesus Christ being dead three days and then rising from the dead never to die again. I want to give you two reasons especially why it's worth giving your serious consideration. One, it is too historical not to be true. And second, it is too offensive not to be true. It's too historical. You know, Paul, who had his own journey of antagonism toward Christ and Christianity and Christians prior to the writing of this and, and, and also one-third of the New Testament, says these words, Christ died for our sins, and he states it as, as just matter of fact, Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures. He was buried, he was raised on the third day in a, accordance with the Scriptures, and he appeared. And then he lists all these different people that Christ appeared to at different times. Cephas, the twelve disciples, 500 other people all at once who were still living and who would be willing to testify as to what they saw. And then James, the half-brother of Jesus, and the apostles. So, so here's something to consider. It's one thing to revere Jesus Christ as a world-class teacher. I, I don't think there's any legitimate school of thought in the world that would not say, the leaders of which would not say, Jesus Christ, major influencer, brilliant insights, compelling world changer. I mean, after all, it was Jesus who taught all of that wonderful stuff in the Sermon on the Mount. It's Jesus who, who told us about the golden rule. It's Jesus who told all those wonderful parables and stories that have connected with literally billions of people around the world. And undoubtedly, the movement of Jesus is the most impactful movement in the history of the world. Nobody can deny that. Even Gandhi, who was Hindu, conceded that his entire humanitarian ethic was formed and shaped by the influence of the teaching of Jesus Christ. But here's where 20-year-old Scott and maybe others get caught up, but the miracles. What about the miracles? A virgin birth, turning water into wine, walking on water, feeding 5,000 people and then with just a little bit of bread and a, a few fish, and then having more food left over after the meal than what they started with, rising from the dead. These sorts of things don't happen every day. These things don't happen any day in my life and in my experience. And so it does raise the question, and we live in 
a town filled with scientists, right? Uh, they call it the Silicon Valley of healthcare. I, sometimes I wish they would call Silicon Valley the Nashville of technology, but that's another conversation for another time. We have some deep thinking people, scientific people, who might ask the question, how can billions of people all over the world be so non-scientific and buy into something that just seems so implausible from a scientific perspective? And I got the best answer I've ever gotten to that question from a scientist, from a world-class geneticist from Vanderbilt University. Who, is, who has influence in the scientific community on a global scale. And I said, what do you, how do you engage that conversation when your scientific friends say that your faith is non-scientific, so how can you believe the things that you believe? And he said, oh, that's easy. He said, it all boils down to the origin question. Where did all this come from? Where did we come from? Where did fingerprints come from? Where did the five senses come from? Where did personalities come from? Where, where did how, you know, people and other creatures are created come from? How did those processes come into being? And he said, really, you know, science isn't, isn't a debate between, um, you know, non-Christianity and Christianity as much as it is between atheism and theism. And if you are an atheist or an atheist, you have to conclude that in the beginning, the heavens and the earth created themselves. Just happened. Now, that's a faith commitment. That's believing something that is hard to believe. And my scientific friend said it's a lot easier to believe that there's a God, at least for him, that there's a God uh, that he sent his son, and it is that his son broke in and 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 suspended some of the laws of the creation that he made, so that he could make a point, so that he could demonstrate to a a hurting world that he is there, that he is not silent, that 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 there's hope. And so that's what my friend said. And so, you, you can call Christianity a lot of things, but one thing that you cannot call it with any intellectual integrity is, is anti-intellectual or non-intellectual. I remind our community here every now and then at Christ Pres that every single Ivy League university except for one was founded by people who believe in the resurrection, Christian ministers and lay people. Same is true of Vanderbilt. Same is true of Belmont. Same is true of Lipscomb, the three major universities in Nashville, Tennessee. You can call Christianity a lot of things. You can call us out for our hypocrisy. You can call us out for the fact that none of us, except for Jesus, lives consistently with everything that we say we believe. Start with me. There's so much that you could criticize. There's so much that you could say, Scott, you are so inconsistent. Absolutely correct. But you cannot, with integrity, hold against Jesus my inconsistencies. Because Jesus is inconsistent in no way whatsoever. So, 500 people, Paul says, are still alive. Go talk to them. They will be witnesses of the resurrection of Christ. 
You know, how likely is it for 500 people to conspire? And, and, and Chuck Colson, who um, was behind the Watergate scandal, got imprisoned for Watergate, became a, a follower of Christ and a believer in Christ through that experience, through that low point in his life, as many people do. He compares uh, Watergate, the Watergate experience, to, to the resurrection experience. And, and he talks specifically about the 12 disciples who spent three years with Christ and then, and then, you know, buried Him and then claimed to have witnessed Him rising from the dead. And he says this. He says, 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead, and then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Every one of them for this was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. Watergate, on the other hand, Colson says, embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world, and they couldn't keep a lie for three weeks. It's food for thought. It's too historical, some of us believe, for it not to be true, but it's also too offensive not to be true. You know, you've heard the phrase, you've probably said the phrase, you can't make this stuff up. Some of the, 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 the world's greatest thinkers, C.S. Lewis included, W.H. Auden, the, the great poet included, have said this is actually the thing that, that, that pushed me over the, the edge to believe in Christ, is that no mere human being could make this stuff up. W.H. Auden talks about how he turned away from atheism to Christianity, and, and a fellow atheist friend felt betrayed by that change in belief uh, for Auden and asked him, why? Why on earth would you leave atheism for theism and especially for Christianity? And Auden said this, I believe in Jesus because He fulfills none of my dreams, because he is in every respect the opposite of what he would be if I could have made him in my own image. No one would have made up a Savior like this. No other voice within history or literature manages to arouse all sides of my being to cry, crucify him. In other words, what Auden is saying is, the offense of Christianity is actually one of its greatest proofs. Because even though Christianity requires every adherent as a starting point to come to Him empty-handed and receive His mercy and admit that he or she is a sinner. You know, that's the first question anytime somebody joins our church. This is the first question they have to answer yes to. Do you acknowledge yourself to be a sinner in the sight of God, justly deserving His displeasure, and without hope except in His sovereign mercy? Do you? Now, there, there are a lot more hopeful questions that come after that, but that's the starting point. You've got to acknowledge you bring nothing to the table. All you need is nothing. All you need is need, and in a room full of valedictorians and salutatorians and PhDs and professors and people who run the state of Tennessee, that's a hard one to swallow because you've built your identity on bringing something to the table. And Jesus says to my table, the only thing that will get you there is nothing. I bring it all or I bring nothing for you.
and you bring nothing. Receive what I have for you, and then you give your all for me. Which means that after receiving His mercy, we then submit our lives to His terms. Jesus said, okay, if you want to come after me, you must deny yourself daily. Take up your cross and follow me. It's another way of Jesus saying, I'm making an absolute claim on all your time, all your money, all of your body, all of your relationships, the way you conduct yourself as a citizen. You're not even allowed to say mean things about politicians and governors and presidents anymore. You're not allowed to if you're a Christian. I just said, I claim every bit of it. It's all mine. Who wants that? To admit how weak we are and then to give up everything for Him? And yet, the bigger miracle possibly even than a man coming up from the dead is that anyone would follow that. And it has become the most influential religion in the history of the world. One-third of today's world population of seven billion people follows Jesus Christ and believe in the resurrection and submit to these terms. You can't make this stuff up. So, it's too historical, it's too offensive not to be true. That's the answer to the is it true question, and that's the, that's the biggest chunk of the message. Who is it for? So, I say this to our community a lot. My favorite thing about the Bible is all the screw-ups who are in there. One notable thing about the Gospels is, you know, the first one is the Gospel according to Matthew, and he comes out of the gate in the very first chapter by listing the ancestry of Jesus Christ, the people that Jesus came from, and the people that are included in what the Bible calls the commonwealth of God's people. And then you go on and read the rest of the New Testament, including letters to churches like Corinth, which is filled with a bunch of dysfunctional, codependent, self-serving people. And you find very quickly that, that the New Testament uniquely platforms not people who have their act together, not, not people who have kept their, their record untarnished, but sinners and sufferers, people who are unfinished, ashamed, hurting, and afraid. Those are the people that Jesus Christ platforms and builds His movement around them as they are surprised by the hope that He gives. So, three names in, in particular that, that Paul mentions here. One is Cephas, which is the Aramaic name for Peter, who was also one of Jesus's main followers. And the unique way that Peter experienced the resurrection of Christ was this. As Jesus was going to the cross to die for the sins of people like Peter, Peter, after swearing loyalty to Jesus, come hell or high water, all these other people, they're going to be cowards, but I will never betray you, betrayed him the worst, did it three times, what was too afraid to be publicly associated with Jesus because of what the Romans were about to do to Jesus. And then Jesus dies, and 
on the third day, the first Easter Sunday, several women come to the tomb of Jesus, not to meet a risen Savior, but to take care of his dead body, to, to tend to his corpse, and to be nostalgic about the meaning that he once brought to their lives. And they're met with an angel who says to them, he is not here, he is risen from the dead. And then Mark, one of the four gospel writers who was also a protege to the Apostle Peter, uniquely includes these words spoken from the angel to the women, go tell the others and Peter that I am coming to them, that I am risen and that I am coming to them. As if to say to Peter, as if to send message ahead to Peter, I don't want you to be anxious about your next encounter with me, knowing that you betrayed me in the way that you did, knowing that you sold me out, threw me under the bus in the way that you did, I don't want you to be anxious. I don't want you to think that you're going to be met with condemnation. So he says to the women, go tell the others, and especially I want Peter to know, I'm coming. It's copacetic. It's all good. It's better than copacetic. It's a world of love that I'm about to open up to Peter. You know, when Jesus welcomes you after you put your worst foot forward, it has this effect of making you do some crazy things and courageous things that you never thought you might do before. And what has Peter become but the boldest speaker of truth to power that history has ever known? Peter eventually gives his life for his profession of the resurrection and becomes the primary spokesman to wearied, persecuted, suffering Christians to keep going and to fear not. He becomes the consummate encourager. He puts courage into scared people. Second person that Paul mentions is James. James, again, is the half-brother of Jesus who could be described before witnessing the resurrection as a Jesus cynic and a Jesus skeptic. In the seventh chapter of John, it talks about how the crowds were ridiculing Jesus, and then it says, even his own brothers, which would include James, did not believe in him. Why would somebody like James want to distance himself from his own brother? One one reason would be embarrassment because of the kind of company that Jesus kept. Prostitutes, addicts, People who were pushed to the side, on the margins, never got invited to the the green rooms or the VIP parties, never had access to that world. The untouchables, the other. Jesus just kept on and on and on running toward those spaces and toward those communities and people that the rest of the world was trying to avoid like the plague. So, of course, James doesn't want to be lumped in with that guilt by association, right? Like even the the religious leaders, they they would point to Jesus and say, he welcomes sinners and eats with them. That's a discrediting thing. He can't be legitimate. And the other reason why James might want to avoid public association with his own brother is fear. Because people in power were trying to eliminate Jesus because of Jesus' growing influence. And yet, when Jesus appears to James, it changes him too. And James, if you read the book of Acts, becomes the key leader 
of the church at Jerusalem, which is the central church in the beginning of the Christian movement. And also, if you read the letter of James later on in the New Testament, you'll see that James becomes the champion among the apostles on behalf of the losers that Jesus used to hang out with, the so-called losers who actually will inherit the earth according to the Beatitudes and rule the world, the weak, the vile, the poor, the needy, who found hope in Christ. And the third person Paul mentions is himself. He humbly includes himself as a beneficiary of Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection. And he he says here in verse 3 that Christ died for our sins. He includes himself boldly includes himself. And then in verse 8, this is his, his humble statement. He said, last of all, as to one untimely born, Jesus also appeared to me. You know, he's identifying himself somewhat as the runt of the Christian litter, as, as one who by all measure shouldn't belong And yet, Jesus meets him. The risen Christ meets him, and the circumstances behind that encounter are remarkable because before he became Paul the Apostle, he was Saul of Tarsus, a powerful and vicious serial killer. And his target was people who followed Jesus. And he was on his way. He was actually traveling to a city called Damascus to finish off more followers of Jesus. And that's where the risen Christ meets him, stops him in his tracks, says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? So invested is Jesus in the suffering of his people that, that, that it's as if it's his own suffering. And that represented a turning point. Witnessing the risen Christ himself represented a turning point for Saul of Tarsus. Then he, he is renamed uh, the Apostle Paul so that, 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 you know, that he, formerly a Jew, could also make a, a, a meaningful connection with Greek people. And so, so his name Saul, which was a Hebrew name, uh, you know, was, was changed to Paul so that he could uniquely connect with people in the Greek world with the message of Christ. And this, this man, Paul the Apostle, he ends up writing a third of the New Testament. At the end of his life, we, we see that he never lost his sense of wonder that God would, would target someone like him, even like him, to be included, to be given belonging in the family of God. At the end of his life, he writes to a young protege named Timothy, here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. And he talks about how he was once a blasphemer and a a persecutor and a violent man. And he speculates as to why God would still show up for him. And his answer was, well, it seems obvious to me that my life can now be an example to the world of people who think they are too far gone, that they are too distant from God, that they have screwed up too much, that they have fallen too deeply into a deep, deep ditch to an irrecoverable place. They're ashamed, they're hurting, they're afraid, they feel like they don't have access to God, but if He can meet somebody like me and include somebody like me, 
and welcome somebody like me, would he not do the same for anyone? And then he breaks into this poetic flourish of worship and praise for the mercy of God. Then finally, it won't let you down. You know, all of these three men, plus 11 of the 12 disciples, two of them are part of the 12, died prematurely, executed for their faith, executed for the declaration that Christ had risen from the dead. Remember, they preached that between them for about 40 years, all of them at the cost of their own lives. Who was the lucky one who who didn't get killed for his faith? It was the Apostle John who died in a remote prison because of his faith. Maybe because all of them shared the poet George Herbert's perspective. Herbert brilliantly said that death was once an executioner, but now because of the resurrection of Christ, death is more like a gardener. Now, in the next few weeks, I'm going to unpack that statement. We're going to unpack that statement in the remaining messages of this series. Hope you'll be back. We're here every Sunday of the year, uh, 8.30 and 11 o'clock. We welcome you back. Obviously, most of you are part of this community already, but we would, we would love to see God out to the community, especially those who are curious about things like the resurrection and what it can mean for them. So I'll close with this. Recently, um, I've had some private and very warm, meaningful conversations with a man that I I regard as my mentor, and his name is Tim Keller, and he has been a pastor in New York City for uh, uh, roughly 40 years now and was um, named by Fortune magazine, I believe is the only pastor to ever make it onto the top 50 most influential people in the world list from Fortune magazine uh, for all the wonderful contributions he's made for a better, more life-giving world in the name of resurrection. And he cares nothing about accolades like that. Never has. It's never interested him. What he's talking about these days are his focus goals because he has stage four pancreatic cancer. And the last conversation was through Zoom and he was actually wearing the chemo on his arm as we had our conversation. And I was able to experience what the New York Times wrote about him this past week. And the interviewer said this, it's easy to forget that Tim Keller has a fatal disease. It's hard to have a conversation with him without feeling more hopeful and buoyant. And then the interview goes on to say, you know, what are the main things that you're focusing on in your last days of life? He says, well, the the number one thing is focus. I want to make sure that every moment is well spent and meaningfully spent. The second is to know the Lord and to continue pursuing knowing the Lord. That's the only way that I could imagine withstanding my own impending death. And then he he goes on to say, I've also got some relational goals, and this is a guy who's in his 70s, and he says, my first relational goal is to continue improving my marriage. That seems like something you'd hear from a 25-year-old, but a 73-year-old? 
I want to continue improving my marriage. And I want to spend as much meaningful time with my kids and grandkids as I can. And then he talks about how he wants to remember, he wants to continue writing, and he says this, I want to, 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 to create as many notes in a bottle as I can to the future church. And then the last thing he says he wants to do with the, what remains of his life is, I want to encourage people. I want to be an encourager. Now, how on earth could somebody facing those circumstances have a heart so light, so remarkably light? The, the answer is this, because it's too historical and too offensive not to be true. And it's also too hopeful to ignore. And so, we will close here now with prayer, and then we will sing a song to solidify, or as Tim says, to drill these things down into our hearts like a screwdriver with a screw. That in Christ and because of resurrection, there is no guilt in life, there is no fear in death, and this is the power of Christ in us. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given ample reason to take the claims of Jesus Christ seriously. You've turned it into a verifiably historical faith, into a verifiably historical event that is hard to deny based on the freight of the eyewitness testimony and the changed lives that have followed through the centuries. Thank you, Lord, for also making the gospel so offensive that it requires us to, to bring nothing and to acknowledge that you bring everything to the table, and then it calls us to submit to your terms, that you make an absolute claim over our time, money, body, relationships, etc., and yet so much of the world, so much of civilization has bought in. That in itself is a miracle of God. And I pray even this morning, here in this room and all over the world, more people would buy in. Christians who have been away from you would experience renewal and return to you and return to life in Christ and all that that means. And those who are here as doubters, seekers, skeptics, unfinished, ashamed, hurting, afraid, fearful, I pray, Lord, that this would be the day of revival, that this would be a day that your Holy Spirit animates the person and work of Christ in those men and women and children's hearts. Thank you that it's for anyone and everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord. You will leave out no one who wants you. Put that want on our hearts, Father, we pray. Thank you that the resurrection will never let your people down. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, and it's for his sake that we now sing. Amen.